Have you ever asked these questions? Aren't all religions the same? Don't they lead to the same place and aren't all their holy books similar? If you've asked questions like these, I've got some fascinating history that helps answer these questions. Hi, I'm Yvonne Pran, and welcome to Bible 805, where you learn to know, trust, and apply the Bible. Our topic today is, How is the Historical Truth of the Christian Bible Unique? Part 1. This will be a comparison with the Hindu and Buddhist scriptures. Now before we begin, remember this lesson is part of a four-part foundational series entitled, How Truth and History Confirm That We Can Trust the Christian Bible. The four lessons in this series are, number one, what is truth and how historical truth relates to religious truth. Number two, how do historians determine truth and why geography, archaeology, artifacts, and documents matter? And now we're on lesson number three, how is the historical truth of the Christian Bible unique? Part one, where we're going to look at both the Hindu and Buddhist scriptures. And then our next lesson, the last one in this series, number four, we will do a comparison with the Muslim and Mormon scriptures. Now do try to watch or listen to all four lessons for a full understanding of why we can trust the Christian Bible. Now let's talk about first of all why it's important to know why the Christian Bible is unique among all other scriptures. There's a great push today for religious tolerance. A common thought today is that all religions are the same, that they basically teach the same things, and that all roads lead to the same place. But that's not tolerance. That's homogenizing, blending together belief systems. And to say that they're all the same is not respectful of various religions because they do not teach the same things. To say that means you've never looked at any of them carefully. It's kind of like if you order, you go to a restaurant and you order some peach pie and your waiter responds when he or she comes to your table and sets something in front of you and says, here's coconut pie. It's all pie. All pies are the same. Now, you wouldn't feel respected if that happened. Peach pie is very different than coconut pie, no matter what the waiter's opinion. Now, that might seem like sort of a silly example, but it's the same when comparing religions. To say, oh, they're just all the same, really is not respectful of any of them. Now, we are always supposed to talk about other religions as 1 Peter 3.15 tells us with gentleness and respect. But at the same time, we must respectfully point out that all religions and their scriptures are not the same when we look at them carefully. It's important to understand the differences when we look at their sacred documents because of the overwhelming importance of the consequences of what they teach. Each set of religious texts teach a way to live today, the path to future salvation, and what happens after you die. These are extremely important topics. To evaluate them, we're going to look at the history of other scriptures with the same criteria that we use to look at the Christian Bible. Now, let me briefly go over what we've covered so far. In a previous lesson, I shared how, because I wanted to know if I could trust the beliefs I was raised with, after lots of research and study, I learned that what is true 
is what is consistent with reality and that history is the way I chose to verify reality, truth, and the historical and evidential foundations of my faith, the Christian faith. If I'm going to trust a belief system with my life now and my eternal destiny, I want to make certain as much as I'm able that the documents, the scriptures my belief system is based on correspond to truth. Do the places talked about exist? Did the people really live and say what is recorded? Do maps and history outside these texts corroborate what is written? Because faith might be more than checking off a list of historically accurate facts, but it shouldn't be less. We should be able to verify if the places talked about in a religion scriptures existed and trust that we have the words from their religious prophets correctly recorded and that those prophets lived as they said they did. It seems like this is an essential starting point. If history can verify the facts of any faith, seems essential. On the other hand, if a study of history shows that the people, places, and events of a faith are the stuff of fable and legend, well, we want to know that also. If the statements made in the scriptures of any religion can be verified in true history, I call them historical anchors. After learning about the history of Christianity in the Bible, I felt that Christianity and the Christian Bible had many verifiable historical anchors. And I'm going to share different ones as I go along and later on we talk about the different books of the Bible. I'll get very specific. Uh, we have this for example, um, archaeological thing that shows us that uh, something happened in Chronicles and we have another one for here in Jonah or whatever it is, I will be sharing those individual ones. But there was one other thing after I determined that Christianity had a lot of these anchors, things that really tied it to the truth of the past, to true history, to what really happened. I had to be honest with myself because there was one other thing that really bothered me and it bothered me for a long time. What if all religions also had valid historical anchors. I assume that if people trusted their eternal destiny to other scriptures that they would have to be historically verified in the same way the Christian Bible is or at least in similar ways that there there should be some kind of historical backing up for all of these different things. But I had to admit to myself what would I do then? <laughs> I really, for years, and, and this is something that I, I've only over the last few years realized, that I hesitated to look at other religions and how they got their scriptures because I was honestly afraid of what I might discover. I heard all these great things about the Quran and about the Book of Mormon and different things, and I thought, well, you know, maybe maybe it's just really good also, and maybe there's all sorts of historical background, and I just, I was afraid of what I might discover. I finally realized that I was being a faith coward. I wanted to know the truth, and so, Honestly, with fear and trembling, I started researching other religions. As I was taught to do as a historian, I tried to be objective about it. I read overview documents on them, books on them, that were from, in all honesty, a decidedly not 
favorable to Christianity uh, viewpoint. I read these different books. Then I decided that I would read their scriptures. I thought, you know, I just need to do that. And by the way, you can get all of them free through Kindle. You can get a copy of the Quran. You can get a copy of all of the Mormon scriptures. You can get a copy of the Buddhist and the Hindu scriptures. You can get them all free and download them on your Kindle or on to your desktop computer. And I will share excerpts from each of them. The results of this study are what I'm going to be discussing in two parts. This first one will look at the Hindu and Buddhist faith in the scriptures, and the second part will look at the Muslim and Mormon faith in scriptures. This is kind of this was a hard lesson to put together. Um, in fact, I I redid it and I redid it and I redid it and then I redid it again. Um, I don't want to be mean or disrespectful, but the stakes are far too important. I mean, we're talking eternal salvation. This is incredibly critical for us not to look at these things carefully. And I know we all want to be nice. We all want to be kind. And we can still be nice and kind. But we need to look at these things honestly. So, Let's get started. But before we do, actually before we get into the individual scriptures, let's quickly review the definition of truth. Remember, truth is the body of real things, events, and facts. It's the property of being in accord with fact or reality. (laughs) That's straight out of Merriam-Webster Dictionary. That's what truth is. In Norm Geisler, in his book on apologetics, then goes on to say that falsehood does not correspond with reality. The intent behind the statement is irrelevant. If it lacks proper correspondence with reality, that is, it is false. And so in talking about this in terms of religious texts, it doesn't matter if you want to make people feel good or whatever. If it doesn't correspond with reality, it is not true. We determined then, in our previous lessons, that a useful way to decide if documents are true is if they correspond to reality, if they are based on verifiable history. For my study then of various religions, here's what I determined we should look at. Are the basic facts of people, dates, locations of the various scriptures based on historical truth or not? (laughs) Really pretty simple. If their scriptures say this, did that really happen at that time, at that place, etc.? That's what I looked at when I looked at the Christian Bible and found that yes, according to all of the things that I was able to look at in accordance with history and geography and archaeology and artifacts, yes, the Christian Bible had the historical anchors that I was looking for. And if they aren't based on truth, what are they based on? Are they based on stories, fables, myths, human opinion? What, what is it? This is an important question, because if the basic facts are not based on truth, on true history, on what really happened, how does the religion jump from fable to claims of spiritual truth that give meaning in life and eternal salvation. This is extraordinarily important to look at. It gets a little more complicated because also definitions are important in this discussion because for the various religions that we're talking about, many religions use similar terms to those that are used by biblical Christians, but they have very different meanings. For example, 
Salvation in Hinduism is something called moksha. Now, it means in the Hindu religion, a drop into the ocean, no more reincarnation, as they put it, a blowing out, a quenching. But salvation in Christianity is so different. It means individual, physical resurrection, eternal, conscious, abundant life. So you see very, very different things. This is just one example. There are many more, and I'll try to point out some of them as we go along. But it's important to clearly define terms, not only in what we're doing now, but when you have a discussion with someone in another belief system, another religion, always clearly clarify your terms. Our plan now is to look at each religion and their scriptures. What follows, please understand, this is not a comprehensive course on world religions, but I tried very, very hard to make each presentation an accurate and respectful representation of each religion. And here's how we'll do it. First of all, I'll give you a brief overview of each of the four religions. Part one, I'm going to talk about Hinduism and Buddhism. In part two, Islam and the Mormon Church. Second, I'll talk about how do they define salvation and a life pleasing to God, a way to salvation, what whatever sort of the core of their religion. Third, I'm going to look at their sacred writings and what, what is it that supports these beliefs? And I will read you samples of each of them, again, that I trust are representative. This is a very brief outline, but I, I tried really, really hard not to um, give you anything that would misrepresent the particular faith system. Fourth, then after we've looked at these things, what are the historical anchors in their scriptures that support their claims? We'll look briefly at geography, archaeology, source criticism, the document history of their scriptures. And again, this will be very brief, but I think it will be instructive. Last, we'll look at how each one views Jesus and the historical basis for their that view. It's very interesting. All religions have a view of Jesus. Now, what they think about him is really, really different, but I think it will be instructive again to look at that. Let's now look at an overview of Hinduism and their view of salvation. Now, Hindus do not believe in the same God. There is not one, really one, overall God in Hinduism. It's very, very multifaceted. There are many varieties of it. Many different gods are worshipped. However, all Hindus believe that our illusory, individuated selves, what they call the Atman, are one with the impersonal cosmic consciousness of the universe. One of the popular statements in Hinduism is Atman is Brahman and Brahman is Atman. The Hindu scriptures teach that the goal of humanity is liberation from an endless cycle of death and reincarnation. They call that samsara. Liberation or moksha from samsara is attained when we realize that our individual selves are an illusion and that all is one. Salvation, or if you can call it that, again in the Hindu religion is dissolving into nothingness and this is sometimes referred to as nirvana. This state is attained through ritual and actions, which vary in accordance with however Hinduism is practiced. Some are very ascetic, some are very indulgent. Not any one of them is considered the only way. You choose whatever way you choose to practice. Now failing to achieve moksha 
or nirvana or whatever you want to call it in one lifetime, then the law of karma, which most people have heard about, kicks in. And karma dictates that our the deeds that we do in one life determine how we're reborn in the next life, in the next trial to see if you, you make it into nirvana. And they dictate whether you will be born as is sometimes said, a man, a monkey, or a mosquito. What then are the Hindu scriptures that are the basis for these beliefs? First of all, the Hindus believe that their scriptures always existed in some divine form, and then they were written down by the various gurus. Reflecting the whole multifaceted character of the religion, overall, there's tremendous variation in what is accepted as scripture. And not all of them are accepted by every group. There are bits and pieces of different ones accepted by different groups. Within this multitude of scriptures, there's a wide, wide variety in content, in type, in teaching. Next, I'm going to share with you some examples of some of the most common ones. And again, Although this isn't exhaustive, I'm trusting that it is a good representative. First of all, on the examples, there are the Vedas. The Vedas contain hymns, incantations, rituals from ancient India. The Upanishads, this is commentary, applications, many, many forms. What one of their websites said is that there's no fixed list of the Upanishads, as newer ones are constantly being composed. Whenever older Upanishads do not suit the founders of new sects, they compose new ones of their own. And then there's the Bhagavad Gita, and a lot of people have heard of this. This is um, sort of a fantastical tale. It is primarily about a battle involving Krishna, and it um, also has related stories that illustrate beliefs, that teach actions, that teach consequences, etc. I'll, I'll be reading you a sample of that in just a minute. Now, here are some quotations from Hindu scriptures. Now, many of them are deal with how to practice Hinduism. The first one, it's, um, it shows you some of the importance of self-denial. This is a key characteristic of many forms. And again, the goal is to help the seeker achieve nirvana, or at least, as some of the, the commentaries say, at least a good rebirth. If you don't get to nirvana, at least a good rebirth. And this is a liturgical reading from the Upanishads. And it says, the laity says, Today I enter upon the Aposa observance during the day. I undertake, I undertake the set of eight precepts. Then the monk or the nun says this, I undertake the training rule to abstain from tra- taking life. I undertake the training rule to abstain from stealing. And then the response is, by morality they attain good rebirth. By morality they achieve wealth. By morality they attain nirvana. Therefore, one should purify morality. And then another example. This is from the Bhagavad Gita. And this is this is kind of a fun little story. But uh, let me read it to you. Lord Shiva said, O Pavarati, kindly hear from me. 
There was a king of the name of Vikram. One day, when he was going to the forest to hunt for hunting, he took his son and two hunting dogs along with him. When he reached the forest, he released one of the dogs to chase a rabbit. Then the narrative goes on to explain what was actually happening behind what appeared to be happening in the story. That's how just a whole lot of them in the Bhagavad Gita. This is just kind of a, a formula how it works out. And here is how it is explained. Kashiva was the most cruel of men. His wife's name was Vilobana. She was a very loose lady who always enjoyed the company of other men. For this reason, her husband became very angry and killed her. In her next life, she became that dog, and Kashiva, due to his sinful activities, became the rabbit. <laughs> so what this teaches is karma, and there are just all kinds of stories like that, that um, these particular actions happened, and the reason that they did is because of what people did in a previous life. Now, as interesting as many of them are, when we evaluate them historically, there is tremendous variation. My examples are reflective of some of the most widely used ones. They date from approximately, and we don't really know because it starts in oral history, around 6000 BC. That was, a, we can trace things way, way, way back for the oral history of the origin of many of them. But it wasn't actually until medieval times that these were put in written form. So there are, there's basically, now some maybe were written down briefly, but there are hundreds to thousands of years between the creation of the stories and when they were written down. In all of them though, there is absolutely no, none, zero, archaeological or historical variation of the manuscripts. For the primary stories of characters such as Krishna, there's again no historical basis. There are thousands and thousands of pages and variations and little agreement among them. There's no concise grouping of the manuscripts accepted by all of the different groups or even that much within many of the groups. So as to the honestly to the historical anchors of the Hindu scriptures, there aren't any. There really aren't any. There are no historical anchors. Now I did put in the notes as the Western mind views them. Now, the reason that I put it that way is when I was reading different Hindu commentaries, they will say that, but they will have all kinds of spiritual explanations for their origins and for the, how they were passed down. And um, that is obviously acceptable to people who accept the, the scriptures, but for the way we in the Western world would evaluate historical anchors and the veracity of the textual transmission, whatever, there, there just really, there really isn't anything. All of their scriptures in our evaluation would be that they're based on legend, myth, and tradition. And they're really acknowledged as such by, by most of the followers. They wouldn't say, oh, you know, Krishna was an actual person and here's the historical record and you can find these facts and you can, no, they don't say that. You know, this is what we believe because we believe it, basically. Now then, what is the Hindu view of Jesus? To Hindus, Jesus' proclamation, the Father and I are one, that basically confirms the Hindu idea. They think that through rigorous spiritual practice, anyone can realize his own universal God consciousness. 
They see Jesus as an incarnation of the divine, a guru, an avatar, an incarnation of Vishnu, that he is a son of God, but just like other people are, (laughs) that his death does not atone for sin and that he didn't rise from the dead. Hindus say that the teenage Jesus traveled across Southeast Asia, learning yogic traditions and returning home to be a guru to the Jews. These might be nice beliefs and they might be uh, very inclusive, but there is absolutely no historical proof or evidence of any kind for this view of Jesus. It's simply a belief that they have decided to appropriate. These and many other beliefs about Jesus do not agree with any of the known historical teachings that Jesus gave simply as a historical person or the spiritual practices he promoted. They take the practices and beliefs important to Hinduism and associate them with Jesus. They might be well-meaning, but there is no historical basis for them. Now let's look at an overview of Buddhism. The founder was Siddhartha Gautama, who died approximately 563 BC, although the dates are not agreed on by all. By the way, the term Buddha is a title. That's not his name. It means enlightened one, but he is often referred to as the Buddha. History believes he was most likely a real person, but the details of his life are not certain, as nothing was written about him during his life and up to at least 300 years later, and then we're not even sure of the writings at that time. Deification of him is a development in the religion. He never claimed it during his life, nor did his early followers claim that he was a god. Disagreement on whether he was divine or not still continues to this day in different sects of the Buddhist religion. Some believe that he was divine and they see it as a religion, but to many people, probably the majority of people who follow it, it is a philosophy and not a religion. Now I'm going to talk about that a little more later, but for now to continue the overview, In many ways, Buddhism is seen as a reformation of Hinduism. They have a very similar theology and they have similar basic beliefs. The way it's put in in one of the writings uh, from them, it says it came about in this way. As a royal prince, Gautama was raised as a Hindu, but he was unsatisfied. He left his position and went on a spiritual quest. After his enlightenment, he decided to travel and teach what he learned, and the result was the middle way, which he formulated in reaction to extreme asceticism and the extreme indulgence of various forms of Hinduism. Remember I told you it was practiced in all sorts of ways and he did not like either extreme. He tried them. He said, you know, they they really don't work. And it still holds though to some of the core Hindu beliefs of reincarnation, karma, and that a life of devotion and honor is a path to salvation and enlightenment. The middle way consists of, and by the way, this is a rather westernized version of it, but it is much more in some ways clear about its central beliefs. And so I'm going to go through them right now. First of all, the middle way consists of four noble truths. Number one, life means suffering. Two, the origin of suffering is attachment. Three, the cessation of suffering is attainable. And four, the truth of the path to the cessation of suffering. The Four Noble Truths 
can then be attained by the Eightfold Path. And this is the Eightfold Path. Right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. The Eightfold Path is learned by embracing the three jewels of Buddhism, which consist of the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. The Buddha is looked at as a model of mindfulness and self-control, which Buddhism encourages people to strive for. The Dharma describes how to live properly and righteously, and how to view the world from a detached, objective point of view. The Sangra traditionally is a community of Buddhist monks and nuns, but in the much broader sense, the Sangra is understood to be the community of all fellow Buddhists. Now, what is their view of salvation, the goal of life? Nirvana is the term used to describe the end of suffering, the ultimate goal of Buddhism. It is a state of complete bliss, liberations from the limitations and desires of the physical world, and the end of the cycle of rebirth and suffering. And various forms of Buddhism achieve it using variations of the characteristics that I just listed. Now, what are the Buddhist scriptures on which their beliefs are based? The Buddhist scriptures consist of the sutras, the, which is it, that has the teachings of the Buddha, the Tripitaka, the Pali Canon, and the Tibetan Book of the Dead. And all of these have a whole bunch of, of um, subscriptures, you might say, underneath them. Different sects of Buddhism follow different what they call canonical and non-canonical scriptures to varying degrees. And I had a terrible time figuring out which was which. Um, so, but, so I'm sort of treating them all respectfully as different ones of their scriptures. So let me give you some quotes from them because I think you'll, you'll pick up somewhat of a flavor of what's in them. And again, I tried very hard to make these representative. From the, first of all, from the Diamond Sutra, and that's a, a really um, interesting piece. It was created sometime, um, again, there's like a 300-year time span, but um, some uh, they assume somewhere between the 2nd to the 5th centuries. Um, it was block printed in 868 in China. They do know that, and it's one of the first printed books. Now, that in and of itself makes it a significant piece of world literature, but remember the Buddha himself, whose words it says it's repeating, lived between 700 to 1300 years earlier, depending upon when you date his life, which is not at all certain. Anyway, a quote from it. All conditioned phenomena are like a dream, an illusion, a bubble, a shadow, like dew or a flash of lightning. Thus we shall perceive them. And then some more quotes from the sutras, the Pali Canon, and the Tibetan Book of the Dead. Uh, first from the sutras, to avoid all evil, to cultivate good, to cleanse one's mind. This is the teaching of the Buddhas. Greater in battle than the man who would conquer a thousand thousand men is he who would conquer just one, himself. From the Tibetan Book of the Dead. Abandon your notions of the past without attributing a temporal sequence. Cut off your mental associations regarding the future without anticipation. Rest in a spacious modality without clinging to the thoughts of the present. Do not meditate at all, since there is nothing upon which to meditate. Instead, revelation will come to you through undistracted mindfulness, since there is nothing by which you can be distracted.
And finally, a representative quote, please guide all beings from this swamp of cyclic existence. Now, when were their scriptures compiled? After the death of the Buddha, tradition records that his disciples tried to organize his teachings within a system of doctrines upon which they could agree. These teachings were then orally passed down to future generations of Buddhist monks within the various Buddhist communities in India. About four centuries later, in about 80 BC, Buddhist scribes finally started writing them down. They compiled the teachings of the Buddha on paper, which became the Pali Canon. They contain rules for conduct, methods for spiritual attainment, and ethics taught by the Buddha. The historical, some, the historical evaluation of them, um, and some of these quotes actually come from Buddhist sources. The earliest available accounts of the Buddhist life were collected some 300 years after his death, and historians have debated where to draw the line between history and legend, but nobody knows what the facts are, and there is a common consensus on this. They just really don't know. Then this actually comes from a Buddhist website. It says the actual words that the Buddhist spoke go unrecorded. They are all related to us from others who came before us. And the conclusion is that they are admittedly not historical in scriptural verification of the facts of the Buddha's life or words. Buddha did not claim to be a god. Many, they state that flat out. Well, maybe he didn't really know he was a god. Some who say that afterwards, but it's there's still a huge debate today if it is a religion or a philosophy. And because of that, it is very appealing. I would imagine when I was reading some of those quotes about mindfulness and some of the things on the right intention and a lot of the different things about Buddhism, some of you are probably thinking, well, that sounds really familiar. I've heard a lot of that stuff today. And it is very familiar to many Americans. Many Buddhist principles have become part of our national consciousness in many ways. I forget who it was who said this, but I, th I think it's really good where um, this person describes many Americans as functional Buddhists. They wouldn't call themselves a Buddhist, but they pick various actions such as mindfulness and um, you know uh, reading the different things and trying to do the Eightfold Path or whatever. They do these different things and they consider themselves very spiritual, though they might not label themselves Buddhist. Now, you can believe whatever you want, practice whatever you want, but know that there is no historical anchors for the veracity of their documents, scriptures, or for the life of their founder. And it's important not to look at Jesus in the same way as people look at the Buddha or others. Sometimes people will group the leaders of religions all together. They'll talk about Krishna and Buddha and Jesus, and they lump them all together. And please don't do that from a purely historical, objective, history basis. They're very, very different. There is no, underlying no, historical, verifiable record of Krishna or Buddha that is by any measure similar to the historical verification of the person of Jesus as Nazareth. You may not think he's God, but historically, just historically, he is very different from Krishna and Buddha and many other legendary figures such as the angel Moroni in the Mormon religion. In that many sources 
both secular and Christian, verify that Jesus was a real person who lived in first century Palestine, who performed miracles, who was crucified by the Romans, and reported to be alive after his death. Now, even some of the early um, critics of Christianity said, well, he did, he did the miracles, but it was sorcery, or he, he did this and that, and, and you know, it was, he, it, they were evil resources for it or whatever. But history by the people that believed in him and his critics, secular and religious sources, all verify that he was a real person who did the things that the Christian scriptures say he did. That is not the case with other leaders of various world religions such as Krishna and Buddha. So please, um, just from a strictly historical viewpoint, do not group them together. It's simply not an honest historical evaluation if you do. Now then, what is the the, uh, Buddhist view of Jesus? The Dalai Lama is a very popular representative of the Buddhist faith. And who doesn't love the Dalai Lama? He's such a nice man. And he's, anyway, um, but that aside, to him, Jesus is the model of, and I'm quoting from his book, The Good Heart, a Buddhist perspective on the teachings of Jesus. The Dalai Lama sees Jesus as a fully enlightened human being, a bodhisattva, I think is how you pronounce that, a little Buddha, in other words. Jesus is not part of the historic Buddhist worldview. Uh, This was uh, from another source, not the Dalai Lama. Buddhists in the West generally view Jesus as an enlightened teacher, while the Buddhists in Asia believe Jesus an avatar of a bodhisattva, but not God. Many don't see Buddha as a god either, so that's not necessarily a bad thing. When they're saying that uh, Jesus isn't a god, they don't think Buddha is either, so that that's not um, uh, speaking less of him, but that is just how they view some of their teachers in their religion. It sounds nice, but the historical Jesus interferes. Jesus claimed to be God, and it is patronizing and false to make him into an enlightened human being. If he said the outrageous things he did about being the only way to God, being able to forgive sins, and claiming to be one with the Father. Not only that, but he told others that what they believed about him would decide their eternal destiny. When Hindus and Buddhists say nice things about Jesus, but stop just as saying those nice things, they are not complimenting him, but rejecting him. C.S. Lewis' very famous quote is very appropriate here. And he uh, he's referring to uh, when people say that Jesus was merely a good moral teacher. This is how C.S. Lewis responds. He says, that is the one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. In addition to a false view of Jesus, 
From the trip of the Beatles to India in 1968 to the popularity of the Dalai Lama and other celebrities' ties to the Hindu and Buddhist religions, plus the practices of these religions that accommodate contemporary concerns, mindfulness, meditation, this religious tradition is very appealing. Many people, as I said earlier, today have become functional Buddhists, picking up bits and pieces of these religions, but this vague sense of spirituality can have a very dangerous result of becoming people who, as Second Timothy 3 says, have a form of godliness but deny its power. They're always learning but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth says these teachers oppose the truth. They are men of depraved minds who, as far as the faith is concerned, are rejected. This quasi-spirituality is not pleasing to God. Vague spirituality will not save you, though it can deceive you into thinking you're connecting with the divine or some spiritual thing with no basis in objective truth. The remedy to mindless religious practices is, as the Apostle Paul goes on to share, are the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. That's what he tells us in 2 Timothy 3:16 and 17. And these holy scriptures are Christian Bible in contrast to the admitted fables, legends and stories passed down to make up the Hindu and Buddhist scriptures. Our holy scriptures are anchored solidly in historical truth that forms a foundation for a faith in a real Savior, Jesus, a historical person who we can trust for how to live this life and for our eternal salvation. In our next lesson, we're going to look at the Muslim and Mormon scriptures and how they differ from the Christian Bible. That's all for now. If this podcast has been useful to you, please support it through your donations and prayers. For how to do that, plus notes from this lesson, related resources, and helpful links, go to www.bible805.com. In closing, I'm Yvonne Prand, your fellow pilgrim, writer, and teacher for Jesus, and I'd like to end with this benediction. May you know the invitation of God to move from confusion to clarity, from wandering to rest, from loneliness to knowing you are loved, from turmoil to peace, from wherever you are on your spiritual journey, to a growing knowledge of God's Word, and in your personal relationship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.